Okay, I'm glad you're here. I think uh, one of the kind of biggest turning points that, that, that takes place when, when a person starts to uh, take the idea of, of God seriously. Um, see, you see so many of us, and we, we sort of like contemplate these ideas. Contemplate might be too big a word for this. But we, we sort of like reach a decision about something as, 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 as giant um, as God or as a creator, however you want to refer to it, um, very early in life, maybe often as children or maybe a little bit older than that. And then we never really revisit the subject as an adult. We, we sort of reach a conclusion and then we decide that, okay, that's, that's, that's the camp that I'm in. And then we kind of proceed through life, you know, just sort of relying on a decision that we made. But, but there's, there's a, obviously a giant problem with that because a person becomes ever more sophisticated over the course of their life. And a lot of times what you would think about something as a, as a child, you, you would think about it very, very differently as an adult. Um, you know, one of, one of the... One of the, the, the primary examples of this, I think, um, uh, is, is just this whole, this whole idea of the whole Garden of Eden experience and Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve in the Garden of, of Eden. I think that to someone who has sort of earlier in life reached a conclusion that, that this is all sort of like um, essentially a fairy tale um, and a fiction, um, doesn't appreciate the, 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 the enormity of the teachings of, of the, the human condition that are, that are conveyed in the whole account of Adam and Eve in the garden. And this will tie back into our notion of, of God and then also really our subject for today, trying to understand exactly what happened at Mount Sinai because that was the, 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 the moment of the giving of the Torah. So th- this is, these are all tied together, all of these thoughts. But to give an example of of what it means to reach a conclusion, especially about something as enormous, like whether or not there's a God or not, or whether he's involved in the world, um, is, I think, illustrated by, by, by part of the, one of the teachings that we, that we learn about Adam and Eve in the garden. So, so let's go to that. You see, everyone should have this same question. It's a very basic question, which is that if we prize knowledge so much, and we do as a people, we, we, we're known as the people of the book. We, we love learning. We love knowledge. We love it. We love it to death. How could it be that we say that all of the exiles of the world came from eating from the tree of knowledge? Right? It doesn't make, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. We prize knowledge. So now you're saying that, that but this knowledge somehow like undermined everything? So, so maybe we believe in ignorance. No, obviously not. So, so how could it be? What, what is this concept of the tree of knowledge? And why did it lead to our undoing? And what does this have to do with whether I as an adult right now am, I, am, am going to rethink what, what it means that there's a God in the world? So, so you see, if you were to poll like a number of people and you were to ask them, what is the first command, the first heavenly dictate in the entire Torah? I think most people who have some sort of working knowledge of, of, of Torah would, would say the same thing. The overwhelming majority, I think, would say the same thing, which is that 
God told us not to eat from the tree of knowledge. But that's 100% incorrect. You see, the very first bit of heavenly guidance before that is God says, eat from all of the trees of the garden, but that one don't eat from. Now that's, that's very, very significant for a number of different reasons. One is, it shows you that the, that the Torah, that our relationship with God, begins with God urging us to embrace this world and to enjoy it and to explore it and everything like this. However, to understand that there are, <clears throat> that there are boundaries, that God is the creator, we are an aspect of his creation, and therefore it makes sense that there are boundaries. Now, a lot of people ask, and, and this is now getting deeper into the point, well, what is this whole status of, of the tree of knowledge? And you can't understand the tree of knowledge without understanding that there is also a tree of life. And we were destined, in fact, to eat from the tree of knowledge. We were supposed to eat from the tree of knowledge. It wasn't going to be forbidden forever in, in any regard. However, here's the critical point. First, we had to eat from the tree of life. Then we could eat from the tree of knowledge. So the example that I, I love to give, and again, this is all going to get back to us here today, what we think about God today, as opposed to what conclusion we may have reached decades and decades ago. The example that I love to give of tree of knowledge versus tree of life is a lot of times children love to give instruction to their parents and think that they know better than their parents. So my favorite example is a child saying, thinking, you know something, one candy bar is absolutely delicious, therefore, dad, mom, 30 candy bars have to be 30 times better than one candy bar. And then you say back to the kid, no, 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 that will make you sick. And the kid says, which part didn't you get? <laughs> I'm speaking very, very clearly right now. One candy bar is delicious. 30 candy bars must be 30 times delicious. And you go, no, you can't do it. I No, I'm, I'm telling you, don't do that. That is, that is off limits for you. And then, meanwhile, the kid is railing against the injustice and the illogic, right? So, so what's the problem in that situation? The kid is just sort of mired, so to speak, in the tree of knowledge. He hasn't, because of the fact that he's a, at a young age, hasn't experienced life, he hasn't experienced the tree of life. He doesn't have the context of the tree of life to contextualize the tree of knowledge. So you see, we will always be that kid in our relationship with God. Because we will never have the vastness of the experience, quote-unquote, that God has. Even as we acquire knowledges of black holes and white holes and, and you know, gravitational waves, even as our minds grow ever more you know, amazing, still Compared to God, we will never have the context that God has. And of course, this is sort of all summed up in that, 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 that iconic verse when God says, no one can see me face to face to live, and live. Meaning to say, no one can have my mindset and not be me. Because as soon as you know everything that God knows, you yourself are God. And a, a creation will never be in that place where they can know everything that God knows. 
which means that we'll always be, relatively speaking, in the place of the tree of knowledge versus the tree of life. Okay. But, within our own lives, we can acquire more and more and more experience. And we can contextualize with the experiences that we have in life the knowledge aspect of life. And now, as adults, when we acquire acquire more experience, we can begin to ask ourselves questions like, you know something, will I ever fully understand anything? It isn't cre- how is it that creation is so ordered? Right? How, how is it that everything seems to work? All right, there are, there are mysteries, and there are things that I'll, I'll never know, but it's like, th- this enterprise is, is clearly beyond me. It's clearly beyond me. Okay. So, so, so there's a point that I think is important to make, and it's, it's, I feel like I, I want to start saying this idea more and maybe write it up and try to get it out into the world more. Because, because you see, whenever you're talking about ideas about God, especially if you're talking about science as well, you have to keep in mind that that God can't be proven, right? You can't prove the existence of God, but you can't also disprove the existence of God. <laughs> so, so I just want to tell you what, what I, I sort of did an analysis of this one time, and this is the part I want to share with you. This idea that God can't be proven, you see, I think this is how people process this bit of information. And I don't think people are aware that this is their thought process or could even ever articulate this process that I'm about to tell you. But I think this is actually what goes on. People think, okay, it's, it's true. God can't be proven, right? So therefore, this is a sign of the weakness of God. Because if God were stronger, if he were really God, certainly his existence would be so obvious that, you know, that I would know. And if I don't know, and if he can't be proven, then how mighty is this God that I'm supposed to be stopping everything for? Like, that's not a God that I want to worship, a God that isn't strong enough to make himself known. I think this is what people think. But what's the reality? That's, that's all ultimately a fiction. That whole logical sequence is a fiction. What, what is the reality? The reality is that God is actually creating and recreating the entire world around us every single nanosecond. That God's mastery of the universe is so complete that he can exist and be directing all of creation right in front of our face and still remain anonymous. <laughs> this is incredible. This is incredible that it can be all going on directly in front of your face while God simultaneously preserves your ability to deny his existence and then gives you the power and the words to deny his existence if you so choose. <laughs> it's awesome. It's awesome. There's a way, by the way, of correlating 
the first ten utterances, the ten utterances of creation, with the Ten Commandments, by the way. We're going to get to the Ten Commandments soon, the whole giving of the Torah, that, that whole experience. And one of the ways of doing it is you sort of like line them up. And something very interesting comes out, which is that the utterance, the divine utterance for the creation of human beings, you ready for this? Correlates with the commandment, don't bear false witness. That interesting? Isn't that interesting? The creation of human beings lines up with the commandment, don't bear false witness. In other words, this is the drama of creation, that God creates us with the ability to deny his existence. It's amazing. This is amazing. And you know, we've, we've discussed this point. I'll just throw it in just because I love it so much. So, so the rabbis teach that the, 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 the Torah actually existed before the world existed. So it wasn't a Torah scroll floating in outer space because there was no outer space. So what was the Torah before the world existed? This was God's desire and plan for the world that he wanted to create. That's what the Torah looked like, so to speak, before the world existed. It was God's desire for the world. And then God shaped his desire into the physical world itself. Right? And so, in other words, God took the Torah before the world was existed. That was his desire for the world. And he shaped that, which means he made the world out of Torah. Okay? So, with that in mind, you have a deeper appreciation when the rabbis teach that God looked into the Torah and he created the world, that the Torah itself is a blueprint of creation. Now you have a framework to understand that teaching. Okay? So, the, the Zohar teaches that the entire Torah is contained within the first word of the Torah. Because everything is microcosms within microcosms, worlds within worlds. Okay? So the whole Torah is contained within the word breishis, in the beginning or out of, the begin, out of beginnings, or with beginnings God created the world. And breishis is contained within the first letter of breishis, the base of breishis, which means... If you imagine like an upside-down pyramid, if that's the Torah, the entire Torah is balancing on the first letter of the Torah, the base of Breshis. So one of the teachings that I saw, I think it was in the name of the Afstraf Sarebi, that that base, remember, base numerically is two. It's the second letter of the, of the alphabet, right? Aleph base, so base is two. So, so the, I believe it was the Afstraf brings down this idea, which is so awesome, that, that Bayes, in this context, stands for free choice. Because what does free choice mean? I can do this, or I could do that. See, I could go in one way, or I can go in this other second direction. That's two. That's the, that's the essence of free choice. So in other words, the entire Torah begins and is built on Free choice. The maintaining of free choice. Which is this whole idea that God is creating and recreating the world right in front of our faces, but in such an amazing way where simultaneously He's completely concealed so that we have free choice to recognize Him or not recognize Him at all. Okay. So now... 
the Chidush Rim brings this amazing narrative. And the, the narrative goes like this. There were ten utterances of creation, and that basically they became covered over. The fact that God spoke the world, God created the world, became covered over over the generations by idol worship. Then came the ten plagues to uncover all these notions of idol worship. Because if you study the ten plagues, you see that they, they correlate with the ten sphero, right, which is kind of the structure of the universe. And they systematically eradicated all the klipot, all the coverings over God's creation energy, essentially. Attacking all these different notions of idol worship and showing how none of them exist before God. And now come the third set of ten, right? We've got the ten utterance of creation. Then we've got the ten plagues, which are sort of like cleaning them up. And then we've got the reinvigoration and a deepening of the ten utterances of creation with the Ten Commandments, which contains the entire Torah. So there's this amazing sort of cosmic narrative that is unfolding since creation, and it's all leading up to Mount Sinai. Okay. So, so remember, so just an important point, we're not going to go too deeply into it, but it, it's, it's important to know. If you want to hear more about it, we gave a talk a couple of weeks ago called um, We're Adam and Eve Jewish, right? That'll kind of give you context for this, but I'm just going to say it quickly. Don't think that God just kind of like waited around for a couple of thousand years before he gave the Torah. <laughs> because it's a little bit, for me anyway, personally, it's a little bit problematic. Why did it take so long for God to give the Torah, right? If the, if, but if you see... <laughs> If you see the fact that the entire world is made out of Torah, and that the Torah has been an active force, if you understand, if you understand world history, if you understand just the, just the unfolding of events, right? That that the Torah has been around forever before it was actually given. Then then you have a greater context and a, and, and a better way to understand why, if this was such a sort of like make or break moment. And why, why, for us, we say the Torah is so important. The Torah is absolutely everything. Why it took so long for God to give the Torah. So, so if you understand on a deeper level, you understand that the Torah was absolutely always here. That's the point. Okay. So now, we've got this amazing, amazing thing. You see, it says... And there's this great word in English for this called synesthesia. The rabbis say that, or the Torah itself says, that, that we heard colors and saw sounds. We saw sounds, right? So, so in other words, there was this entire sensory sort of like amazing thing. And the Medrash teaches that when God spoke, our souls actually flew out of our bodies, right? So, so Reb Shlomo gives a very amazing um, explanation for this, which is that he says that we know that our souls are one. And we also, our bodies are one also, but, but our bodies aren't really one like our souls are one. What does that mean exactly? Because, you know, when you look at your body, you're 
eyes don't look like your hands, and your feet don't look like your ears. So you understand that there's a oneness to your body, but the oneness to your body is not like the oneness of your soul. So what happened at Mount Sinai, according to this way of understanding it, is that our bodies and our souls reach the same level of oneness such that with our bodies, we were able to hear with our eyes. <laughs> An amazing, amazing idea because our entire bodies became one in this amazing way. Okay. But I want to, I want to get into another point that Rabbi Shlomo makes that's, that's, I think, phenomenally deep. And it's sort of building on the ideas that we've been talking about up until now. Which is, the very first word that, that God says at Mount Sinai, you would think, okay, you know, this is, we talk about worlds within worlds, right? And how everything is, is like that, and how everything goes back to the, the base of the first word of Breshis and everything like this. So it should be equally true, and it is, by the way, equally true, with the first utterance of the giving of the Torah. Right? Because that's another epic beginning. So, what was that first word? What was that first word? And it's sort of a bit mysterious, actually. The first word, I mean, we know what the first word was, but why that word? Okay? So, the first word was anochi. So, anochi means I. So, I mean, basically, the, the whole world is waiting for thousands of years for God to address all of creation. And God begins with this word, I. Why? Why? Right? So, Rabbi Shlomo gives a very, very, very deep answer to this. He says that, really, a person actually, if a person is all alone, if you're all alone, you don't need a name. You see, you only need a name to distinguish you from other people. So when you're among people, you need a name so that I know, you know, I can call to you and that you'll answer, right? But in a situation where a person is completely isolated and they're the only ones that exist, there's no need for a name. Does everyone hear that? So God addresses himself as I because what happened at Mount Sinai was God stripped away the illusion of the entire material world. And God showed to everyone there in this massive moment of mass prophecy, mass prophecy, by the way, what other religion would have the chutzpah, and the Jewish people are the only ones who have the chutzpah to state the following historical fact, that there were two and a half million people at Mount Sinai who all experienced the same prophecy. I mean, if you think about what would be the most easily disprovable historical point in the world, it would be that. I mean, you talk about overplaying your hand. That would be the definition of overplaying your hand. Especially when you think of how other world religions have started and they have one eerie consistency to them, which is that there was one person who received the word and says to everyone else, trust me. How about a situation 
where everyone gets it at the same time and we're talking about over two million people. This is something else entirely. Not only that, but there's a verse in the Torah which I think is like one of the, one of the big underreported pieces of information about what our experience was. So this is, um, if you want to check this out, this is in, in Shmos, Exodus, uh, chapter 19, verse, verse 9. So listen to this. It says, Hashem said to Moshe, Behold, I will come to you in the thickness of the cloud so that the people will hear as I speak to you. And they will also believe in you forever. Listen to that. So that the people, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to make it so that the people will hear as I speak to you and they will also believe in you forever. So according, there, there are different versions, different understandings of which commandments God said at Mount Sinai. The Gomorrah says that God said the first two commandments, and then Moshe said the next eight. By the way, do you know how they learned that out? A very interesting way, through gematria. Because the word Torah is gematria 611. Since we know that there are 613 commandments, that must mean that God said the first two commandments and Moshe then said the next 611. So they actually figure that out from the gematria of the word Torah. And, and I'll tell you something. It just I haven't thought about this in a long time. When, when my son was little, he was maybe, I don't know, he was really little. He was maybe four, I don't know, something like that. So he was jumping and, and I put this poster, I had this sort of like vintage poster of like an old airline right? Swiss air, right? Anyway, and, and my son was jumping up and down on his bed, and he was, when he'd jump up, he'd hit the, he'd hit the poster, and then he'd kiss his hand. <laughs> Which, you know, and I, I said to him, I said, Moshe, what are you doing? I said, that's not Torah. And he said, yes, it is. And then he pointed to the number which was on the airplane, which was 161. But I looked at it again and it's like, but you could rearrange that. That would be 611, which is the Gamachi of Torah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, anyway, um, what can I tell you? It happened. That, that story happened. So, anyway, so, so, but. But back to this idea, one of, the, one of the reasons why we believe is not just that there were two and, a, two and a half million people who all experienced this mass prophecy at the same time. Not just that. But because God said the first two commandments, and then God said to Moshe, here's the next commandment, and then Moshe said it to us, but now listen, we heard what God told to Moshe. That's what this verse says. Listen again. Behold, I will come to you in the thickness of the cloud so that the people will hear as I speak to you and they will also believe in you forever. What we heard was God tell Moshe the commandment and then we heard Moshe say to us the exact thing that God had told to him. So we understood that Moshe was 100% a reliable emissary of the Word of God because we all experienced that conversation 
that God himself had with Moshe. We were part of that conversation. Granted, as listeners, but we were able to authenticate that what Moshe said was 100% accurate. So, so these are, this, this was part of the Mount Sinai experience. Anyway, let's get back to, this, to, to what Rip Shlomo was saying. So, so the first thing that Hashem says is this word, Anochi, which is just this, this, this statement, I, which, which, which stripped away. And remember, it says when God spoke, our souls flew out of our bodies. What we were able to see through prophecy at that moment was that all that exists is God. That God is literally the only thing that exists. Now I'll tell you one of my favorite teachings, favorite teachings of all time. This is the Medrash says, and I'll give you the explanation um, from the Lubavitcher Rebbe. The Medrash says that when God spoke at Mount Sinai, there was no echo. Now, what does that mean? That's, you know, again, one of these cryptic teachings, and you have to sort of decode it. What, is it, what does it mean? So the Lubavitcher Rebbe explains that what is the physics of an echo? An echo is you, you say something, like, say, yodeling, right? You, you yodel, and then it bounces off, the sound waves bounce off a mountain, and then it, the sound waves repeat, and you hear it again. You, you understand? Okay. Now, why was there no echo at Mount Sinai? Because there's nothing other than God, which means that there was nothing for the sound waves to bounce off of because the only thing that exists is God. There is no other. Do, do you see? This is, this is very mind-expanding if you, if you contemplate this. So, so God says this amazing introduction, Anochi, which is just the I, and you realize that's, that's the only thing that exists. Now, the next word, Anochi, now I want you to picture this as we say this three-word phrase, because normally speaking, this whole phrase goes together, okay, which is Anochi Hashem Elokecha, okay, which means I am God, you're God. Okay, but what I want you to picture is sort of like the word Anochi on top, and then underneath that, Hashem, and then underneath that, Elokecha. I, I, first level, am God, you're God. Okay? So what Hashem was basically doing was laying out the structure and layers of the universe. So first is this idea of Anochi, where everything is absolutely stripped away. Remember, God is referring to himself as I in this context, because when you understand that really all that exists is God, there is no need for a name of God. Because why do you need a name if you're the only one there? You got it? Then comes the next level down, which is behind everything, filling everything, is this idea of Anochi. However, God says, I've created this physical universe, and so now, in the, in the context of a physical universe, I need a name. What is my name? Hashem. Yudke Vavke. This is, this is my name. 
And what am I to you? Your God. <laughs> so basically, this sequence, the first three words that were said of the giving of the Torah Mount Sinai, Anochi Hashem Elokecha, is stepping us through the material stratas of the universe, starting with the idea that all that exists is God, that there is nothing else, to a material world where God exists and His name is Hashem, to you, every single one of us till this day, that's your God. Intimate. Totally. It's like it's you and Him. And you have a direct connection, of a direct, direct line to the master of this world, to beyond this world. Literally. This, this highway, this amazing pipeline, right? Amazing. And what is it through? How do you, how do you climb that? How do you, what is the vehicle that you drive, the road and the car, with the, the spaceship, whatever it is? What is it? That's, that's the Torah. That's the Torah. Right? Because God is giving you the keys to deal with human society in this world and beyond simultaneously. Because we know the mitzvot are affecting this world and the next world simultaneously. Right? And that's why, by the way, there's so many mitzvahs. See, like, people just don't understand. Like, they think the rabbis are control freaks or that God's a control freak, right? How could it be that there's so many mitzvahs? It's governing so many different aspects of my behavior. Like, give me a break. What are you doing to me? But think about it. If these are the keys to absolutely all of reality, there has to be a way to elevate absolutely every single encounter, whether it's the most mundane or the most holy or the most business, whatever it is. There has to be a way. So there have to be a lot of mitzvahs. Not because there's someone who's trying to make a robot out of you. That's not the point. The point is, is that this is a comprehensive vision of reality. So therefore, it has to be comprehensive. It's just logic. Okay. So now, let's, let's kind of go, go deeper. Okay? Which is... So what about me and you? How do I, now that I see that I'm part of this amazing, like, infinite structure, right? That I'm simultaneously, you know, part of it in this Anochi level where all that exists is God and I sort of disappear within God, right, as part of the great oneness, but that simultaneously I'm in this material world where there's this realm of names where I also have a name. So on the one level I have a name, and on the other level I'm absolutely nothing. Or, but but the, the best kind of nothing, you know, because I'm absorbed within the infinity of God. So I'm simultaneously existing on these levels. All right? Now again, I want to bring you an amazing teaching from the Megalia Mukos, right? Now he was the chief rabbi of Krakow around 1600, when that was the number one rabbinic post in the world. Now the Megalia Mukos, the name itself, like, like if, you, if you contemplate it, it should make you tremble. The Megalia Mukos, that means the, rede- the revealer of the depths. Wow. Right? And he was one of the greatest Kabbalists, one of the greatest rabbis in Jewish history. So listen to what the Megalia Mukos said. 
I'm going I'm to build a little bit of a framework for it, but I'm going to tell you what he says in a moment. So, remember, there's two aspects to Torah. Torah is one grand structure, but there are two aspects to it. There's the written law and what we call the oral law. Or put another way, we've got what some people would call the Bible or the Torah, the five books, right? That's Torah Shebeqtzah, the written aspect. But then we also have the Talmud, which is God's explanation of what the written law means. And that's what we call the oral law, right? And we're always adding to the oral law. Every time you give an explanation, that's you interfacing with the Torah and bringing out more light and more explanation and more meaning from the Torah. Okay, so the two of them work together. The written law and the oral law, and they overlap. Now, imagine a tree. So this is the imagery of the Chidush Arim. A tree has the main trunk. He says the main trunk of the tree, that's the written law. Then you've got all these branches and fruit. That's the oral law, because that's where you've got disagreements, because in the, t- the Talmud is filled with arguments, right? Right? No, it means this. No, 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 it means that. By the way, I heard something just very fundamental, which is that if something is true, it's not afraid of questions. And the whole Talmud, which, by the way, if you want to know how big the Talmud is, if you learn one page a day, it takes you seven years to get through it. So the the, the Talmud is massive. What is the Talmud? It took 500 years to edit. 500 years to edit. I don't know if there's a book like that in the entire world. That's the Talmud, okay? The Talmud is attacks, a series of attacks on the Torah. It's questions and questions and questions and questions and questions and questions and questions. Just all questions. So the fact that that is part of the Torah itself, questions and attacks on the Torah, (laughs) shows you that we're not afraid of being questioned. And you just have to understand at some point, we just have to say we don't know. That's a perfectly fine answer. And, and certainly every field has, I don't know. But we're not afraid of questions. Okay. So, so you have this amazing overlap between the written law and the oral law. Now, when you talk about the branches going off the tree, that's the oral law. Now, what is the classic, what is the classic debate among schools of thought within the Talmud? That's Shammai and Hillel. Right? Shammai sees it one way, Hillel sees it another way. Okay, now we're ready for the Torah of the Magalia Mukos. He says the word Moshe, Moshe, who gave us the written law, Moshe, is spelled Mem Shin He, which stands for Machlochis Shamai Hillel, which means the argumentation between Shamai and Hillel. And what's so amazing about that is that you see the simultaneity of the written law, which is Moshe, and the oral law, Machlochis, all the argumentations between Shamai and Hillel are happening within the same word simultaneously. And that's going on to this day, and that's us also. We're Shammai and Hillel in this construct. And we're the branches of this enormous tree that keeps on growing, and this fruit that just keeps on, like, just like filling baskets and 
you know it's just it's ongoing it's dynamic and it does it doesn't end because because the Torah itself as the mind so to speak of God is also infinite so it never stops producing okay this is why you can revisit the Torah endlessly throughout your life and always find something new every time that you open it up always you know I, I once had the experience of looking through some recent collection of PhD theses on Shakespeare. And I'll tell you something, if you ever want to get depressed, do that. <laughs> because the hyper-specificity <laughs> of what it takes to be able to advance an original thought on William Shakespeare today is it's gotten in well I I remember just what my impression was at the time when I was going through the topics it's gotten to the point of the absurd it's gotten to the point of the absurd because as great as Shakespeare was and remember God made Shakespeare <laughs> as great as Shakespeare was Shakespeare is not the Torah Shakespeare is not infinite at a certain point it's sort of like all right, who's next? Melville. Let's 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 get, 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 get Moby Dick off the shelf. Let's kind of move on, guys. Not that we should stop enjoying Shakespeare. I'm not saying that, but but nonetheless, like I say, at a certain point you hit a wall. The Jewish people have never hit a wall with the Torah. We've just, there's just no wall to hit. There's no again because there was no echo, right? There's no wall to hit because there was no echo because it really is the infinite compressed into the finite. It exists in book form, but what we're talking about is a cosmic construct. Okay. So that's, that's that. But now we have to kind of revisit this idea. Remember, we've got this chain. We've got Anochi, Hashem Elokecha. I on top, Hashem, the name of God that's already getting into the more physical universe, your God. That's, that's you, right? And that's your connection through this world to beyond this world. Okay. So what's, what's the second commandment? That's great. That's the first commandment. But now what's the second commandment? Because you need the second commandment in order to be able to stay on the right side of the first commandment. What's the second commandment? So I'm going to tell you. Lo ta'aseh lecha pesel. Which means don't make yourself a carved image or an idol. Okay? And in fact, I saw, I read one time that the most repeated commandment in the entire Torah is against idol worship. Like, don't, don't do idol worship. It's repeated again and again and again and again and again and again and again. Okay. But there's something much, much deeper in the, in the words of the Torah here. Lo lecha pesel. Don't make for yourself an idol. So, so the Talmud in, in Sanhedrin, it's, uh, it says here 63b, and now I'm, I'm going to just kind of follow along. This is from Rabbi Tversky. He's, he's explaining the, the Talmud. Uh, Rabbi Tversky, the, the psychologist from, from uh, Pittsburgh. And of course, Rabbi Tversky, that's, you know, that's a very exalted lineage going back to the Chernobyl Rebbe. They're from many great Hasidic masters. So, so Rabbi Tversky brings the Talmud, and the Talmud says that, you know something, even though you see in Tanakh, and you see episodes where Jews fell into idol worship and everything like this, and there are all sorts of accounts of this, 
The Talmud says, you know what? The Jews never really worshipped idols. They never really, really did it. And so they say, well, you know, we've got a lot of accounts of them doing it. So what are you talking about when you say they never really worshipped idols? He said, because really they had something else in mind. Not that these things had any power. So Rabbi Tversky explains the following. Very, very interesting. And this is very deep. This is like a kind of like a kind of like a moment where a person has to sit and think about their own lives, you know. It says that basically there's certain things that a person wants to do. And we're born with these with these urges. It's it's natural. It's, it's normal. And these things we're told don't do. Right? Now, by the way, you know, the, the way I understand this, I, I've never seen anyone actually give this thought over, so I'll, I'll just say it in my name, which is that we say, if you, if you actually look, that we say that we've got, each person has 613 different body parts, okay? And that those correlate with the 613 commandments. So every single person is sort of, so to speak, a mini Torah, right? And there's a lot to that, by the way, but let's kind of make another point. Which means, it occurs to me, that if you're a mini-Torah, that means that you have every thou shalt and every thou shalt not within you. And some people get the various things in different strengths. Some people are better at certain things, and they're more vulnerable to other things. Right? So... So I think that that sort of explains why every single person has, has these urges. Because we have the entirety of the Torah, including all those shot nots within us. So anyway, that's more of a kind of a mystical take on, on human urges, things like that, you know? Anyway. So... So... Again, let's, let's remember the fact that, that the very first divine directive in the Torah is eat from all the trees. God first and foremost says, enjoy life, embrace life. It's for you. I'm putting it there for you. Take pleasure, everything like that. However, understand that there are boundaries. So, but what happens when you run up against the boundaries and you don't want the boundaries and you want to indulge in the boundaries beyond the boundaries, and you don't want to feel bad about doing it. <laughs> because you're going to feel bad about doing it. <laughs> I know. Invent your own religion. <laughs> Invent an idol who will tell you <clears throat> that this is 100% okay to do. But now we're getting into the depths of idol worship. Because this idol that you made with your own hands, do you really believe? Do you really believe that this thing made the world? No, 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 no. You have made it so that you could instruct the idol. Do you understand? The power is... The, the, it's not that you should be um, subservient to the idol. The idol was created by you in order to allow you to do whatever it is you want to do. So essentially, you've created a dynamic where you have made yourself into the idol. This is what the Talmud is saying. 
in order to permit whatever behavior. Now, with this in mind, this is mind-blowing. Let's go back to the words of the Torah. You see how deep the Torah is. The word lecha is a reflexive verb. It means to you. Okay? So now listen carefully. It says, lo ta'ase, don't make lecha, yourself, into a pestle. That's what it says. Not don't make a pestle. Don't turn yourself into an idol. <laughs> this is because really, grammatically speaking, it should be lo ta'ase, pestle lecha. Don't make, don't make an idol for yourself. But it doesn't say that. It says, don't make yourself into an idol. Don't make yourself the final authority. Because that's actually madness. It's actually madness. You contemplate the infinity of the universe and you think that you're the ultimate authority. There's something wrong going on. Honestly, you know? And it's okay not to know. It, 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 you can say, okay, well... I'm making myself into the final authority because the alternative is to be to live in a state of simply not knowing. But you know what? That that is probably the preferred state. I, I would rather deal with someone who says, I don't know when they don't know, than to try to give answers when they don't know what they're talking about. I mean, we don't even know what happens after we die. Right? So, I mean, there's so many fundamental questions about life that we don't even know about. How can we credibly make ourselves a reliable authority on the enormity of life in our own souls? I, I, I don't understand the impulse. I don't understand the impulse. And again, these are questions that a person only asks themselves and considers as an adult when they've had a chance to live a certain amount of life thinking and contemplating and interacting, after they've had a chance, so to speak, to eat from the tree of life, then they can start to ask themselves these questions again and say, well, does, does it make sense that I should make myself a final authority? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Is there more to this? Maybe so. Do I have to know in order to proceed in a certain direction? Maybe, but maybe I can take one tiny step. I don't know. I don't know. It's very, this is all very personal stuff, very private stuff. This is between an individual and themselves. They, they have to make these decisions, you know? I'm just asking questions. Um, So, so yeah, so, so this, is, this is our, so to speak, our, our, our protection. If we want to be able to ensure this pipeline, right, is, is to not allow ourselves to be the greatest stumbling block in terms of our moving forward, right? And I'll just say one more thing on this, just because it had such a big role in terms of my own personal spiritual development, which was something that I learned from Rabbi Nachman about this idea. So, so I'll just review it and then we'll wrap it up. So, so the idea is like this. 
a lot of people ask, and it's a good question, I, I wondered it myself, which is that if the first commandment is God saying, essentially, I exist, what do you need the second commandment for that says, don't worship any, uh, any idols? Because if God exists, then God is already the only power, which means you, you don't need to be told not to worship any idols. Okay? So Rebbe Nachman offers a very, and again, this was very influential on me, offers a very amazing insight about human psychology. And he says that, believe it or not, it's possible for someone to believe in God, to actually say, you know what? And, you know, you can call him whatever you call him. Everyone might have a different name for it. But yes, I do believe in God. But I also believe that my business partner has power, and I believe that my kids have power, my wife has power, my boyfriend or my girlfriend, and I believe that, you know, the landlord has power, and I believe that the, the government has power. And So, in other words, it's possible, um, and pretty commonplace, by the way, for a person to acknowledge that there is a, you know, a creator out there, while at the same time ascribing power to a variety of other forces in their life. So, to this person, who's, I think, maybe the majority of people, by the way, to this person, the Torah says, get rid of that notion. Okay, great that you believe that there's a creator. Great, that's great. However, now, systematically remove the notion that any other thing in the world has power. And that's a whole nother um, spiritual exercise. And the way that I would suggest that you proceed in this direction, if you're interested in pursuing this in a real way, is ask yourself, what interactions give me fear? Because if you're afraid of another person, then at that moment, you're probably not, a, you're not being mindful that there really is no power other than God. So ask yourself, or be on top of, be mindful, who instills fear in me? And then you'll have a way to proceed further. Well, why do they, why do I feel threatened in that way by them? Why? What, what power am I attributing to them that I think that they have? Right? And then, step by step, you can start to remove this, um, you know, little wisps of idol worship. I mean, I think that's probably too strong a term to use, but just for the sake of conversation. Just the, the little wisps of attributing power to other things that they don't have power. You have a way now, you have a, you have a system, a tool, to be able to eliminate these, these other thoughts from your head. And as a person does that, they're able to develop and hone their relationship with Hashem, who is Anochi, to be able to live in this world and the next world simultaneously and understand that there is only one power. Now for some questions and answers. First of all, there are people with synesthesia. I don't know if you know yes, that. Yes, I do know that. And for the rest of us, there's yes. LSD. <laughs> yes. And by the way, there, there, there are people who can taste colors. Right. Yeah. Right. So it really goes further. Yeah. Right. Right. And 
in all seriousness, there are... And, and taste music, too, yeah, by the way. Yeah, yeah. They can taste different notes. Yeah, yeah. I, I met a couple. Yeah. And I was being serious. Yeah. There are plants yes. that can help you do that. Yes. Um, okay. Truth is not afraid of questions. Let's, yeah. let's go into that. Yeah. All right, so... I've, I, you've said today that God cannot be proven or disproven. And, then, and that's by design. Right. And then there's also the joke about the two fishes who don't believe in water. Right. Right. Yeah. And we love our paradoxes. Yeah. So. Or they question. They question the existence of water. That's how it No, is. one of them says, didn't you say one I, of them? I wrote it. I wrote it. So I know. Oh, you wrote it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I, won't, I won't question that. Um, okay, so it can't be proven or disproven, but yeah. we, let's say you, for example, are a hundred percent sold on it, on on God, even if it can't be proven. So there, where I am with it is, I believe I will have a better life. If I'm 100% sold on it. Yeah, but you may never be 100% sold on it. Right, but... You know, you know what I mean? But to use yeah. you as an example, you yeah. are, right? When I, when I think about the world, mm -hmm. when I think about the world, if I ever have a moment of doubt or something like that, yeah. I ask myself the question, where did this world come from? Right. You know, you know we talk about things like just how all these different particles or whatever it is mm -hmm. came together and everything like that. Right. Why did they stop at this moment? If there was this amazing sort of like ongoing creation, mm -hmm. why why did it why didn't it absolutely continue? Why did why did it stop at this one moment where everything could function in the in the, in the way that it's functioning? You know what I mean? And this is one small point, but but it just it it, it says to me that there is a um, a guiding hand mm -hmm. and an instiller of order. Right. Even as in our lives we experience chaos and right. and and tragedy and mysteriousness mm -hmm. and all sorts of unexplainable things. Nonetheless, if you actually look at the universe itself, there is a coherence to it mm -hmm. which is pretty unnerving, actually, and yeah. compelling, and right. and suggests an an, an ordered approach. Yeah. But okay, but yeah. you believe something that you have just explained is not provable or disprovable. Okay, so, so let me let me ask you something. Let, let me give you an example. Imagine imagine you walk into a kitchen. Okay. okay? And there's a covered pot on the stove. Mm -hmm. And the, there's a flame on and you smell it and you go, "You know what? Oh, Oh, I'm so happy. It's chicken soup. I love chicken soup. Now, you can't prove that it's chicken soup. You can't prove that it's chicken soup because the pot is covered, right? But you smell the chicken soup. So, so something is telling you very strongly about the environment itself, or, and, and to make the parallel totally transparent, when you look at the world itself, just the, the, the magnificence of the world is telling you there's a, a God. The smell in the kitchen from this boiling pot is telling you that there's chicken soup in there, right? Now here's the thing. It's either chicken soup or it isn't chicken soup. 
So in other words, while I don't know at this moment, and as you're saying to me, you say you know, and yet you don't know, which is true. Right. I don't know. I'm the person in the kitchen smelling the chicken soup, thinking there's chicken soup in the pot, but the pot is covered. I don't know that there's chicken soup in the pot. However, here's the point. There's either chicken soup in the pot or there isn't chicken soup in the pot. And if there is chicken soup in the pot, then it was always the case that there's chicken soup. In other words, if there is a God, and we say there's a God, whether I believe in God or I don't believe in God doesn't impact the existence of God. Because if God exists, you can have all of humanity saying he doesn't exist, and that doesn't stop him from existing. (laughs) So in other words, one's belief doesn't impact the ultimate reality. The objective reality. So if God exists, he absolutely exists. Now I am taking as my strong sense, based on what I've experienced in life, all the human interactions that I've had, all the things that I've read, and all the different fields of thought that I've read, that there is in fact a God. And that he's involved in creation. Now that's either true or it's not true. But if it's true then it's absolutely true and it's always been true and it has nothing to do whether I, whether I believe in it or not. So you've gotten inklings, is what you're saying. Yes, I think that this world and life is a massive hint if one is open-minded. Mm-hmm. If one is, if one, the problem is, is that so many times people are so set in a particular mindset that they close themselves off to basically sensory bombardments that are going on around us constantly. Well, yeah, but with the chicken soup, all you have to do is take the lid off. Right, and that's what happens at the end of 120. <laughs> the soul leaves the body, oh, okay. the lid gets taken off, okay. and there you go. There you go. Okay. All right. They were six, each time was six by three by six. You put them together, they were like a box, they were six by yeah. six. Yes. I thought it was fascinating yes. because all vubs. What? All vubs. All vubs. Wow. And just six 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 yeah. in in the world oh, oh, you're right. negative yeah. thing. Yeah. You know, Iron Maiden has about six 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 and it's like wow. So I was I was on a supermarket and I got my receipt, whatever, and it said uh, something six six six. And I was like, yeah. wow, I got really excited. It's woohoo. And this woman next to me started freaking out. She's like, six six six. I'm like, no, you understand, it's a good thing. And she's like, just looking at it, I can't explain everything. You know, you know, by the way, the, the stock market fell either last yeah. week or the or on Friday, six six six. No way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow, that's when I purchased yeah. I moved stocks like, I'll just make one one more quick point, um, which is that an, an interesting parallel at, at Mount Sinai, um, to our birth process as well. So so we're, 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 the Beis HaLevi brings us that, that actually the whole written Torah and oral Torah were on the first tablets. And the second tablets weren't, didn't have the miracles of the first tablets. It's almost like the second Beis HaMikdash and the first Beis HaMikdash, the two holy temples. But anyway, when, when Moshe smashed those tablets, one of the things that happened was that we were then going to have to really labor to 
dig out the meanings of the Torah in a way that we wouldn't have if that if 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 we had not worshipped the golden calf, which is what the reason why those first tablets were smashed to begin with. So the whole destiny of the world would have sort of proceeded toward its completion substantially earlier. And part of that is reflected in the, the idea that the written law and the Torah, oral law kind of came down in the same tablets in the first set. Okay? So, so Moshe smashes... So first we get the complete Torah. Moshe sh- smashes it, and now we have to labor to get it back. Now listen to this. Listen to this. It says in, in the Gemara, in, in Mesechtanida, that when every child is in their mother's womb, they learn the entire Torah, and then they're born, and then an angel touches them on the lips, and they forget the whole Torah. And the rest of our lifetime, we're laboring to actually, not to learn the Torah, but to remember the Torah. Do you see how that's an exact parallel? Yeah. It's an exact parallel between the fact that it all came down initially, but then it was smashed, or the angel, so to speak, touched our lip, and then we have to go through this process of remembering that which was already given. Does yeah. that also reflect the, 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 the also the Sfirot goes through three different phases where you have the Sfirot there, they exist in form but they're not, there's something kind of wrong, they, they split apart, and the third stage they reintegrate at the, at the higher level, that kind of repeats. Yeah, so, so this, is the, this is Hegel, right, which is, which is thesis, you know, antithesis, and then synthesis. So, so really, when he put that out there, mm-hmm. he was really um, tapping into a lot of the divine mechanics of the world. Wow. Yeah. 